Hey there, folks, and welcome to Bread and Poetry, a podcast about poetry and bread for everyone. I'm your host, Dianelli Antigua, Poet Laureate of Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and Poet Laureate of Your Hearts. On this podcast, we talk to the people in our community, the poets and the non-poets alike, about poetry and what it means to them. In the words of Toque Dalton, I believe the world is beautiful and that poetry, like bread, is for everyone. With me today is Sarah Audsley, poet, dog owner. <laughs> I'll read her bio first. Sarah Audsley is the author of Landlock X, out with Texas Review Press in 2023. A Korean American adoptee, a graduate of the MFA program for writers at Warren Wilson College, and a member of the Starlings Collective. Osley lives and works in Northern Vermont. Welcome, Sarah. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think we talked a little bit about your dog once, and I don't know your dog's name. What's your dog's name? Oh, my dog's name is Weezer. Oh, spelled like the band. He came with a name. He also came with pneumonia. Oh, he he's a pandemic 2020 puppy. So, but now he's the love of my life. So we're, we're I'm in a codependent relationship. I, I love this. I mean, if you're going to have a codependent relationship with anything, it should be a dog. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so let's break bread. So, Sarah, what role do you play in your local community? In my local community, I work for Vermont Studio Center, which is located in Johnson, Vermont, in the northern part of the state. I facilitate writing events within the community that are free and open to the public. And I also am a member of an adoptee collective. And we do a quarterly book club with an author of a book by BIPOC adoptee. Parts of my community are both, you know, local to where I am in northern Vermont and also kind of wider all over the U.S. I'm connected to writers through the Starlings Collective, which is a BIPOC adoptee collective. And we host a quarterly book club and reread a book by an adoptee author and bring in the author for the second half of a one hour session. Oh, that's so awesome. I, I love that. And I'm remembering when I heard you read at the Word Barn, just how rich your poems were with your experience. And it's good to hear that you've built community around that, which I think is so important. And that's, that's so lovely. It's funny, my next question was, tell us about Vermont Studio Center and your work there. <laughs> oh, sure. I can expand on that, I guess. Vermont Studio Center is an artist-in-residency program based in Johnson, Vermont, in the northern part of the state. It was founded in 1984 by artists. An unofficial motto is Artists Serving Artists. And I'm an alum of the program. I was a resident in November 2018 for the full month. And then oh. I came back to work for the organization for a one-year fellowship program called the uh, Staff Artist Program. And now I'm full-time year-round. I'm part of the program team, and I host the visiting writer events and 
am a front-facing person for the organization in that I'm interacting with the visual artists and writers who are in residence, hosting events, scheduling programmatic offerings, and supporting the artists and writers while they're here in whatever Mm -hmm. capacity they need support or encouragement while they're working in their creative practices. Right. Absolutely. And remind me, Vermont Studio Center, they offer meals to their residents, right? Is that part of the program? Yeah, that's correct. So every resident, which is they're either visual artists or writers who come and we just call them residents. Every resident is offered a private studio space, a private room in a shared house, and all meals, so breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And those meals are fresh, daily prepared, and also we source local food sources wherever possible. And those are opportunities to gather together um, as breaks in between working hard in your studio. You get to break bread with your fellow community members in um, the residency community. Mm, That's so lovely, especially like when you are kind of like in this creative flow I often forget to eat and it's nice that it's already offered there and you get to be like in community with the other residents there and chat about your work. And I think that's, that's so important. Yeah. I mean, having someone cook meals for you and clean up after, and you don't, you also don't have to shop. So it's like the full amount of time that we spend during our week or even each day with meal prep um, is a lot of time actually. So once that that amount of time is is given back to you because the residency program is is doing that for you. The time during your day really expands for your creative practice. I mean, I, I like cooking as like, you know, kind of like a, a daily rhythm or ritual, but it can become like wearing, like you're like, whoa, what am I going to make now? Mm-hmm. <laughs> or, like, or I don't know what I like, you know, I'm just going to eat some toast or what I, I don't know. Like, so yeah, it's having people make you food is really nice. <laughs> oh, yeah. Absolutely. A good friend of mine is a chef and I've been enjoying some fresh meals. I'm like, thank the Lord. Somebody can cook. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So since we're already talking about food, the most important question of the show, what's your favorite kind of bread? My current favorite bread is the bread that's offered daily at BSC, Mm. Mont Studio Center. We have a sideboard with fresh bread and then an ample hunk of butter <laughs> on a plate, which is right next to the freshly cut bread. And one of my colleagues recently was standing at the bread table with me and I was, you know, putting butter on my bread. And she looked at me and she said, Sarah, I appreciate your ample amount of butter. And I said, thank you. <laughs> And I guess another bread item that I was thinking about for this podcast that I wanted to share was the rolls that my aunt makes for the traditional Thanksgiving or Day of Gratitude meal. Mm. There are these like white, fluffy, homemade rolls Mm. that are just like really, really delicious and kind of create that mouthwatering childhood memory feeling of, you know, being together with your family around like a major holiday, Mm. especially that holiday where there's a particular type of meal that one has in the American family. (laughs) Right. Um, So yeah, I was thinking about that too, as like a favorite bread that only happens around like a seasonal holiday. Mm. 
Yeah, there's something about like a, a fluffy, like warm bread with a meal. Like that's just, that is beautiful. <laughs> so thinking about memories, tell us a beautiful, powerful, or challenging memory that includes bread. And in a way, you kind of answered some of that talking about your aunt. But I mean, if, if that's the memory, like tell us more. And if you have another one, we're here to listen. <laughs> I think the thing that comes to mind is an experience that was, I guess, more on the challenging side. For my junior year abroad, I spent the entire academic year in Tanzania in East Africa. And the bread that the women make there are called chapati. And there's like these, it's, it's like a flat, it's almost like a, like a non, mm. but it's super flat. And the women just like, they use it, you know, make it with their hands and they like, you know, move it really quickly. And that was a particular time period in my life where I was like 20 and turning 21. And mm. I was abroad for that entire year. And just, you know, getting a fresh chapati was just really delicious. Um, we go to the markets and order them and it just was part of a cultural experience and a, and a memory of being a foreigner someone who looks you know asian and who someone might assume is from you know an east asian country but it is actually american mm. in east africa so really standing out in a crowd among the tanzanians like walking to the market buying buying fruit and getting a chapati. And then my other favorite thing is that they had newspaper print and you could ask for the chumbi, which is the salt. And it was wrapped in newspaper in like the little bundle. And you had to ask for that extra to get the little salt packet. Okay. Also with your, your hard boiled egg, if you ordered a hard boiled egg, yeah, you had to ask for the salt packet. Oh, this, I, I love this. This is like a window into something that I never known before. And like, I love that you're bringing it to the podcast and to our listeners. And yeah, it seems like it was both a beautiful and challenging moment in your life, especially being that young, being the twenties. I would never go back. Never, <laughs> never. You know how people are like, Oh, you know, I, to be young again. I'm like, no, please make me older now. <laughs> Please. Yeah, they, they, my 20s were wild times. <laughs> um, and I'm grateful for them. And I'm grateful to be in this current decade. So <laughs> but the memories, the memories are there. So right. And that's great fodder for poems. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if I can write about that time period in my life. I don't know. <laughs> uh, so what brought you to poetry in the first place? I'm kind of one of those people that has come to believe that it was, I was born into this art form, that it was like an inevitability. Yeah. <laughs> I started writing poetry, like really bad, like childhood poetry in, in elementary school, actually. I was always a kid that wrote down their feelings in a notebook, in a journal, and and then in high school, I also wrote like angsty teenage poetry. And it wasn't until I, I just didn't know that 
that this whole entire like, like world existed, like the quote unquote literary world, that there were podcasts and writing conferences and residencies and MFA programs and AWP, all these things. Very naively, I had no idea until I was around 29 and was kind of having, let's see, like the end of your 20s when you're on the cusp mm-hmm. of that, that next decade, you're like, what are you doing with your life? So I, I, I realized I always wanted to be a writer. And it was the, that, that impulse in me was very, started out at a very young age. And mm-hmm. I didn't return to it until I was 29. I took a creative writing class at a lo- my local community college. Actually, is Granite State College in North Conway, New Hampshire. Oh. So shout out to the community colleges. Yes, and absolutely. Yeah, they do really good work. And then from there, my eyes were kind of open to the literary world and the different avenues and possibilities. But I didn't, I didn't uh, apply to MFA programs or start an MFA program until 2016. Oh, okay. Yeah, and you went to Warren Wilson, which is a low residency program. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And how often would you meet in a year, like with your cohort? Yeah, I guess I guess I would back it up further to do another shout out to the Frost Place. Um, mm. I worked for that organization for three years, from 2012 to 2015, and I also was a participant in one of their conferences before I worked for the organization. The Frost Place was the first poetry workshop I ever went to. Oh, wow. And it really like opened up the, these different possibilities for me. And it's how I heard about the Warren Wilson MFA program for writers, which, as you mentioned, is a low residency MFA program. And it meets twice a year for two 10-day residencies, one in January and one in July. Mm. And you're on campus during that time meeting with your supervisor, coming up with a plan for your semester and a reading list and a schedule. And then you go home and you have packet exchanges, deadlines around every three weeks where you're reading books and writing both critical work, creative work, and new work and also revising. Mm -hmm. And you're also writing a letter to your supervisor. Wow. Yeah. That's a lot of like you have all the control basically in that dynamic where like you're responsible for it. And it seems like so much power to be in a low res program. Like you hold the key to your degree in a way that feels really empowering. I would be scared to have that much power. I I need someone to like be there. I need to see their face. I need to be in a classroom. I need accountability and it has to be outer accountability. And like, I have to also see the person it's, it's, Something about communicating electronically or, you know, emails and whatnot, I feel so removed from it that it's hard for me to like get into that poetic space when I'm sharing poems back and forth with people and whatnot. I really prefer to be in the room with someone when I'm discussing their poetry and there's there's something really magical about it and I appreciate it. But I'm I'm sure there's something also magical about just Enjoying someone's work in your own solitude, too. You know, like that is also beautiful. <laughs> Everything is beautiful today, guys. Everything is beautiful. <laughs> so, one more question before we move on to discussing the poems. So, your poetry talks about your experience as an adoptee. Would you be willing to tell us a little bit more? Yes, I know. I really feel like I would encourage anyone who's 
listening to this podcast to go buy the book. Yeah. And and that's a little bit of a deflection because I feel like there's often the question of like, tell us your story or tell us about your adoptee experience. And it's all in the poems. So right. part of me is like, I don't really want to talk about my story because it's in the work. And what I'm actually really interested in is talking about poetic form and how the poem itself can be the container through which the experience comes into form or the experience of an adoptee or however else one might define oneself is filtered through the choices that we make as poets or as writers. And so with that being said, I grew up in rural Vermont and I was adopted into a a family with uh, white parents. And I have a brother who's also adopted from South Korea. And much of that experience comes through in the work. Mm -hmm. So the, the poems in the book have references to much of like much landscape and place. Those are parts of the obsessions of the book. And, you know, I think that it's really interesting if you engage with the work and some of the poems don't have identity markers per se. Mm -hmm. Um, And then it becomes important to know the identity of the poet. So if you, if you pick up the book and you might not know what you're engaging with, I think it adds more weight to the work. Um, If you know the the autobiographical element of, Mm -hmm. of just reading, it's in the bio too, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So that is purposeful because I try to ground that information from the get go on the back of the book. Or actually, on the, in, the bio isn't on the back purposefully because we wanted to maintain the integrity of the image. So the bio is actually inside the, inside the back cover. But I think that the one version of IE My Adoptee Experience is rendered through this piece of art that is a physical, tangible object yeah. that one can hold. That's beautiful. And I, I mean, I asked this question and I asked, like, would you be willing? to talk about it. Some people ask questions or decide to ask things like in interviews that maybe one's not super comfortable with, or maybe it's just one of those things that you've answered this question a million times before, and it's somewhere else on the internet and people can find it. And it's nice to just have agency and be like, you know, I don't want to answer the question that way. Like it's all in the book. And I think similarly, like my story is all in my book and I don't really need to say it or tell it in such a way in which people can digest it. I'm I'm giving it to you and I'm presenting it to you in that book form. And that's how I want it to be experienced. Yeah. So thank thank you for that. I I appreciate that. That's that's a really powerful and empowering thing to do. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, you know, there's, I was just checking how many pages are in are in the book. Um, you know, there are 65 pages of content mm-hmm, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. in the book. So, you know, I, I think writers of color, one of the pitfalls is that many times we're telling our deepest hurts and traumas and wounds through the transformative power of poetry. But retelling our stories should never devalue the crafting of the work. And it's just like more interesting to me to talk about the choices of even moving from couplets to tercets or like quatrains or, you know, those choices are like what poetic closure you're choosing. So 
but yeah, no, I, I understand that readers and listeners are also interested in the introduction and the way into the book. So another thing I would say is that I re- I'm really interested in, in looking at the pastoral tradition through the adoptee lens, which I hope is what the book does. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm Again, I'm remembering your poems when you were reading them at Word Barn and the landscape in them was just, yeah, I can see that pastoral influence coming through. So we're talking about poetry. Why don't we read a Tiana Nobile poem that you brought for us? Anything we should know about it before you read it? Sure. Tiana Nobile is a dear friend. She is a member of the Starlings Collective. We also met at graduate school at Warren Wilson MFA program for writers. And she is the author of Cleave, which is from Hub City Press. It was published in 2021. Mm. And this poem is one of my favorite, favorite poems of hers. It's called Migrant, and it's a dictionary definition poem. And I'm pretty sure that she was looking at this poetic form for a lot of different reasons, but I think she might have been looking at it from Avan Jordan's work in the dictionary definition poems in his book, Magnolia. And this poem is available on Poetry Daily, and it's also published in her debut collection called Cleave. And it's one of my favorite poems, so I thought I would read it for you all. And I hope she doesn't mind because I feel a deep kinship to the poem and that my work is also in conversation with this particular poem. Yeah. Migrant by Tiana Nobile. Of an animal, especially a bird, a wandering species whom no seas nor places limit, a seed who survives despite the depths of hard winter, the rippling of a heron steering her band from icy seas to warmer strands, to find the usual watering places despite the gauze of death that shrouds our eyes is a breathtaking feat. Do you ever wonder why we felt like happy birds brushing our feathers on the tips of leaves, how we lifted our toes from one sandbank and landed fingertips first on another, why we clutched the dumb and tiny creatures of flower and blade and sod between our budding fists. From an origin of buried seeds emerged these many banded dagger wings, we of the sky, the dirt, and the sea, we the seven league booters and the little by littlers, we transmigrated souls will prevail. We will carry ourselves into the realms of light. Wow. Thank you. That that image at the end. We will carry ourselves into the realms of light. It's breathtaking. It's beautiful. I I know you've kind of already answered, you know, why this poem in particular. So I won't we don't have to go there again, but I think I'm curious about like what is it about this particular poem, maybe an image or a line that really holds like the heat for you that it, you're like, that's, that is the place that really gets me? Well, I, I, I agree with you. I, I love where we land. We will carry ourselves into the realms of light. What a, an amazing declarative sentence that is also an affirmation 
Uh, I also love We the Seven League Booters and the Little by Littlers because it has a, an abstract quality. So it's not really defining those, like the metrics of what the poem is saying, but, mm. but because it's like abstract, but also concrete enough for, for one to be like, yeah, I am a little by littler. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, the other thing that I really love about this poem is that it, it gestures towards a collective yes. and through the use of the first person plural through the we. And I, I wanted to write a poem with that, that in mind. And I found, found it very, very difficult to do so. And it was actually the last poem in my collection. I was able to like write at least one poem <laughs> that, <laughs> that gestures towards a, a we collective voice. And that's another thing I really appreciate about this poem. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking too, well, obviously like the we really draws me in and it, it, similarly to you, it's not something that I feel that I can do or incorporate in my work. I almost feel like, who am I to have that authority to, to, you know, use a collective we, but I love Again, I love that power that is in this poem. And I'm really thinking about the movement that's happening. And the movement in the poem is definitely embodying that migration. You know, we see the bird. And then after that, we're taken down to the many daggered wings of that flower. And it's just, how do we get there? And I just love how each stanza, which happened to be tercets, which we can have a whole conversation about tercets if you want. (laughs) But yeah, each terset brings us to like a different little realm, but it's moving us towards that realm of light. So how do you feel like tercets are working in this poem? I mean, yeah, just tell us more about tercets. That's it. That's all I want to ask. <laughs> oh. <laughs> you want me to geek out because I said I could. Um, yeah, geek out for us for a minute at least. Okay. <laughs> well, I guess I was taught to think about tercets as like a stool with three legs because it has three lines and each stanza is stable by the fact that it has there that there are three legs that keep the stool up. But if you think about how that physical object functions, if you took one of the legs away, then it would topple over. So, which I think is different than the quatrain. When you add a add a fourth line to the stanza, it's like even more like sturdier in a way. And each stanza in a quatrain feels very like this is a package of information. Yeah, I think the tercet because it's three lines, not four, really like pushes the reader to keep going. The line spills over to the next stanza, so you never have a completion except in the fourth stanza where the tercet closes with a interrogative mm-hmm. so you have a combination of fragments and declarative sentences and then a series of three interrogatives that i think the interrogatives stacked on top of each other push the reader forward too and i love how one two three four five in the fifth stanza the we she could have stopped the line in the the fourth stanza, mm-hmm. it could have ended at we of the sky, the dirt, and the sea, period. But instead, she dangles the we, which mm-hmm. propels the reader towards the last final stanza. So yeah. the line is we of the sky, the dirt, and the sea, we, and then next stanza, um, the seven league booters and the little by littlers. 
So that we kind of dangles at the end and is highlighted. And that's the way I think the tercets could provide like this three-legged stool that Tiana is very expertly moving the poem and the reader forward through those three-line packages. Mm, Yeah, yeah. That's like a lot of geeking out. (laughs) Oh, I love it. And I love that you pointed out the the dangling we on the stanza before the last one. And it's not something that I noticed right away, but now I see it. And that line begins with the word we and ends with the word we. And it feels very unifying and... Like you said, it, it's bringing in the the collective, and I love how she's able to accomplish that here. I wanted to to just quickly read a, a quote from an interview that Tiana had. So this is the question. So it says, the afterbirth of your research often appears as questions in this collection. What is the opposite of mother? How can you learn from a stranger's surname? Or your poem entitled, Where Are You Really From? So question on question marks, what place does that have in your poetics? So Tiana says, for me, the act of writing the poem is a type of interrogation. Very often, as you point out, that act provokes more questions. That's also why research plays such a prominent role in my writing. One question almost always leads to another, and following that line of inquiry can be thrilling. Sometimes. Most of the time, the poem doesn't answer the question. Instead, it spirals, pokes holes, and turns in on itself. I've learned so much by starting with a question about myself, my relationships, social and political histories. As an Asian American person, the question, where are you really from, can often feel hostile and is rooted in the racist idea of Asian as inherently foreign. At the same time, it's a question I've personally grappled with throughout my life as an adoptee of color. The act of writing Cleave, her book, began as an exploration of this seemingly simple yet very loaded wondering and led to more questions like, why was South Korea one of the highest exporters of children in the 1980s? And how do South Korea and the United States benefit from such an exchange? What is the history of transnational and transracial adoption and in what ways is it informed by international politics? How is my adoption connected to a larger system of colonialism and power? I was blown away by this answer, and I love that most of her answer, at least at the end, were questions. (laughs) And I love answering a question with another question, and I feel like Tiana, in a lot of ways, is doing that in this poem, too. And I was really struck by that, and I'm glad that you brought the questions up earlier and when you were talking about the tercets and it's funny how the quote that I ended up choosing just really fit with the direction that we went in but yeah hearing that quote from Tiana anything you want to add or comment on that Tiana said she's brilliant (laughs) and (laughs) I agree I agree with everything I agree with everything she said and then Mm -hmm. the, the other thing I will say is that Tiana is an expert researcher because she follows that line of inquiry and I really admire that in her work so if you pick up a copy of Cleave you'll see that that many of the poems in that collection are grounded in her research on 
transnational and transracial adoption and then up against next to her own personal experience. And I think that really deepens the reading experience of Tiana's book. And also I really admire the breadth and depth of in which she'll she'll follow that line of inquiry. I find mm-hmm. myself to be a lazy researcher. So but I, I that's why I admire and look up to my peer as being someone who really foregrounds that expertly in her work. Yeah. Uh, I like that you said that you're a lazy researcher. I, I feel the same. Unless it's like, you know, a friend who's like, oh, I'm I'm I started dating this person or whatever. And I'm like, I'm gonna find out all this information about them <laughs> using the internet. <laughs> That's the type of research I'm good at. That's that's important. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm going to Nancy Drew that shit. <laughs> you best believe. <laughs> you have one of your own poems to share with us. Is there anything that we should know before you read it? The poem I'm going to read is the last poem in Landlock X, the debut collection. So it closes the collection. In an earlier version of the manuscript, it opened the collection. So very well, you know, could have bookended either version of the manuscript. I'm happy that it closes the collection. And then the actual final, final word is the double page full color spread called Waiting Children. It's a full color collage. So the poem that I'm going to read is the last poem in the book, but the collage is actually the last final say of the book, I guess. Mm. I also typically read it as the closer if I'm giving a reading. And I I made a broadside out of it, which was really fun at the Ruth Stone House. We did a letterpress broadside. I handset the title and also the line that acknowledges like the place and where we made it. And then we used a polymer plate for the body of the poem text just for to expedite time. So we handset parts of the letterpress and, you know, printed off a bunch of copies. And that was a really fun process. And it was hard to pick what poem to do that for. And it just made sense that this would be the poem to do it. When my mother returns as X. When my mother returns as X, she multiplies herself to be every single living thing, a cloud of butterflies, six calves grazing in the field beyond the pines, grass bending to the wind's steady pressure. She's a swarm of bees seeking the dust of golden pollen hidden in the cups of poppies. She's an X, marks the spot where she made me, the hand that never fed me, imprinting my DNA a second time. She's a white moon tipped over, brimming with milk for a body that's not there. She multiplies herself to be every form, the breeze lifting the white curtain, a pink silver-edged cloud expanding, the night coming on. When my mother returns, she is the bitter in my mouth I can't dilute. She swells inside. She's the branch from which birds will never fly. Beautiful. Thank you so much. And y'all, just so you know, Sarah Osley will be reading for the Hoot Reading at Book and Bar in Portsmouth. I don't know. I don't remember the date, but it's November. It's the first Wednesday of November, y'all. And you'll get to hear Sarah read live and, and hear more of her poetry. So just putting that plug in right now before I, before I forget. But it's 
lovely to hear you read this this poem. And I love, and, and this reminds me a little bit of the children's book, Are You My Mother? But it reminds me of that, like finding or seeing the mother in everything or or in interrogating everything and saying, like, is this is this the mother? Is is the mother a cloud of butterflies, you know, or six calves grazing in the field? And I love how in a way this poem is the answer to those interrogations. And there are multiple answers. It's not just one answer. And that's one of the things that I was noticing about this poem. Yeah, I think of this poem as functioning in a couple different different modes. I think of it as just purely a list poem, listing all the possible reincarnations of of the mother, and also a haunting. Um, so yes. like being being haunted by the return mm-hmm. of someone who is not in their bodily form. And then I think that some people read the poem as like hopeful in that it closes the collection. But I think that there's also an edge to the poem, especially in the last stanza. You know, she's the bitter in my mouth. I can't dilute. dilute. She swells inside. She's the branch from which birds will never fly. Mm -hmm. So she's not the bird, (laughs) you know, she's the branch. And I, so I think that for me, the intention was for it not to be so tidy and that's okay. I, I I think so. I don't think things are meant to be tidy, especially in poems. I like, I like them to be messy. And I think that a poem is the really great place to make a mess. I was Thinking, too, about the book, The Body Keeps the Score, those life experiences are stored in our bodies and they imprint on us. And your mention of, you know, imprinting my DNA a second time, I was really drawn to that. Yeah, I haven't read that book, but people have uh, mentioned that book to me before, Mm. The Body Keeps the Score. So I guess I'm going to add it on my DVR list. Yeah. Yeah. I think DNA and memory and inheritance and all of that are part of the Sarah Audsley obsessions. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. I love that. And yeah, you mentioned that earlier that your book is just a collection of your obsessions in some way. And I am someone who is obsessed with many, many things. And my work too, it's like, constantly obsessing over like the same images and even when I teach workshops I always always doesn't even matter what I'm teaching I always start with let's make a list of obsessions and keep this list it's ongoing and just write down everything you're obsessed with and I recently had a student who was like what about like things that we appreciate I don't feel like the word obsession is really like helping me draw out what I need to write on the paper. And I was like, yeah, make a list of your appreciations or the things that you notice. Because I think sometimes the word obsession. Yeah, it definitely has this all consuming connotation to it. Right. And that's like, I guess appreciations are a little bit gentler for students, especially for people starting out. Yeah, but I'm not gentle. (laughs) (laughs) Poetry is not supposed to be gentle. Yeah, <laughs> at least, I, at least, I agree. At least. 
I yeah, no, I I totally I don't I don't think poetry is is meant is meant to be gentle. I think that appreciation is very different from obsession. But I could see the your a student being like, I'm not ready. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. It, that's a scary place to be too, like right in the midst of all of your obsessions, like just standing there, seeing them like swirl around in a room. That's how I feel walking around in my daily life. Kind of like that Charlie Brown character that always has like, he's always like dirty and just is a, he has like that like cloud of, of <laughs> dirt around him. That's me with my obsessions. <laughs> they just follow me around. Yeah. And they tap you on the shoulder and you'd be like, now it's my turn. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for reading Tiana's poem for reading your work. Is there anything else that you want to say about your poem before we leave our listeners with a little bit of a gluten-free bite? I guess the last thing I would say about the poem When My Mother Returns as X is that I'm grateful for the effort that it took to achieve those lines. And they were with guidance from my mentors in my MFA program. And that those lessons are both drafting and revision lessons that I'm taking forward, hopefully, with, with new work. And yeah, I, I guess it is a, an important poem for me personally and also for the book itself, Yeah, which I guess is why I read it all the time. <laughs> um, right. But uh, thank you for letting me share it. Thank you for having me on your podcast and for our conversation and for being in community together. Yeah. It's nice to talk to another New England-based poet mm-hmm. of color. Yes, that is exactly right. It is lovely to talk to another New England-based poet of color, which at least in the area that I live, and I think you live, that's that's a rarity. <laughs> so it is it is nice to be in community right here. This is a little collective right here. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so now is the time for the gluten-free segment, or glutton-free, as I like to call it where we leave you with a little morsel you don't need to feel guilty about indulging in, usually a writing prompt related to the poems we've heard or topics we've discussed. So Sarah, what do we have for the people today? Oh, yes. Today, based on either poem, so mm-hmm. the Migrant Poem by Tiana Nobile, start with a dictionary definition of any topic and Mm -hmm. jump off from there from the poem when my mother returns as x begin listing images from the natural world or from the land and place around you as a way to catalog notice and then figure out how to move those images forward through revision Mm. oh i like both of these these writing prompts Yeah, I was thinking similarly, like a a dictionary definition poem, and I've never written one quite like that. I do. Funny enough, I have a a sonnet. It's the mother of all sonnets, uh, I call it, but it does incorporate some, you know, dictionary definitions of what a mother is or who a mother is. And it was interesting how that, 
like where I ended up going. And so listeners, choose any word, a word that maybe holds, maybe that you're obsessed with and, you know, use that as a jumping off point for a poem. And then the listing, of course, is a lovely way to build these images. And then as you've done, you you give them meaning, you give them purpose. So they're not just beautiful images or things that we see, but they're for a greater purpose in, in this poem. So that's that's what we got for you, listeners. Two prompts. I know, right? Listeners are really lucky this time. You get two. Two, two for the two price options. of you get two <laughs> options. I know. It's great. <laughs> two for the price of one. Come on down. Oh, <laughs> uh, so listeners, if you write a poem using the prompts we've suggested, we ask that you submit it for consideration to be published in a future anthology that will showcase work inspired by this podcast. Please submit your poems to pplpsubmissions at gmail.com or submit using the form linked in the show notes, as well as in our Instagram bio at Bread and Poetry Podcast. And as a reference, you can also find a link in the show notes and on Instagram to an archive of the writing prompts on each episode so far. And Sarah, where can the people find you on the internet, on the socials? How can we stay connected to your work? Sure. I have a website, sarahodsley.com, and I'm on Instagram and Twitter. My last name is spelled A-U-D-S-L-E-Y, and my first name is Sarah with an H. Sarah with an H. Is that, There's the distinction. Have you met a yes. Sarah that doesn't have an H and you're like, no. <laughs> there, there are a lot of Sarahs in the world, and we're all very opinionated about how to spell it. And I think, you know, everyone has a right to spell it however they'd like. But for this person, for this Sarah, it's with an H for sure. Nice. Yeah. Let that H stand strong right there. Awesome. Thank you so much, Sarah, for sharing your work and for bringing more work for us to think about and ask questions about. And thank you listeners for for tuning in. This has been Bread and Poetry Podcast. You can follow us on Instagram at Bread and Poetry Podcast and Twitter at Bread Poetry Pod. Please rate, review, and subscribe to keep this thing kicking. This podcast is sponsored in part by the Portsmouth Poet Laureate Program. You can follow them on Instagram at PPLPNH. Please consider making a donation at pplp.org donate to help fund this nonprofit and its mission to further build community through poetry. This podcast is also sponsored in part by the Academy of American Poets with funds from the Mellon Foundation. Bread and Poetry is produced by Kula Productions, Cover art is by Najee Brown, and theme music is by Studias. Stay tuned for more episodes of Bread and Poetry coming at ya, because truly, who doesn't love bread? And who doesn't love poetry? Until then, my dear ones. All right, that's it. We did it. (laughs) We did it!